Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Earl Grey, where I sit down with some of my favourite people and chat about everyday life, always wanting to listen and learn from one another. Today, I sit down with Matt Ventura, all the way from Brisbane, Australia, and ask him about his experience of being a celibate gay Christian and how that shapes his life of being in the margins of both queer community and the Christian community. We talk about belonging and not belonging, identity, the search for identity, and the use of our language and how important that is. This is a conversation well worth listening to and one where I was incredibly encouraged. So grab your favorite cup of beverage and join me for another Conversations with Earl Grey. Matt, you're a oboist. Tell us a little bit about that. How long have you been playing an oboe? Um, I don't actually play the oboe. Oh, you don't? No, the bassoon. Um, that's right. You're probably the too oldest person to make that mistake. So <laughs> that. It is very common. Um, no, I play the bassoon, which is part of the Del Rey family. Um, so we're kind of cousins with oboes. Yeah. Um, but the bassoon is the, the grown-up version of the oboe. So yeah. The deeper bass instrument of the woodwinds. And how long have you been playing that? Um, I think this is my 10th year now. Yeah, yeah. There's something really beautiful about oboes and bassoons, isn't there? There's that kind of... It's it's like the... Um, it's almost like... Well, sorry. I don't know whether this is an insult. But <laughs> it's almost that. like a viola. In that it, it sounds very much like a human voice. But the only insult is that you think a viola is an insult. Um, no, I, I totally agree. It's a, it's a beautiful... Um, vocal kind of expressive range yeah. I think and yeah. the bassoon's probably the most versatile one of the most versatile woodwinds yeah. um, it's got a huge range and yeah we can do all sorts of different fun things in the orchestra yeah. so I enjoy that have you ever played um, Schindler's List the melody of Schindler's List with the um, bassoon I haven't played on bassoon no. I have played a production of the um, orchestra part on piano ah, um, okay. my sister who used to play it in violin Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was listening to a YouTube video of um, of a... I can't remember. It was either an oboe or a bassoon playing the main melody um, that accompanied... Oh, sorry, yeah, the counter melody or something that accompanied the, the violin in Schindler's List, and that was beautiful. Uh, but today we're talking about um, identity. So tell us a little bit about yourself, um, Matt. I know you're a... Um, you're a, a apprentice, a, a ministry apprentice. Um, how do you identify yourself? How would you put put an identity upon yourself? How would you introduce yourself? Oh, look, um, I don't know, it's an interesting word. Hey, um, uh, if you'd ask me, who are you, what do you do, um, sort of questions, I'd, I'd say, you like, um, I'm working in full-time ministry at the moment. Um, that's a big part of my life and a big part of how I spend my time and a big big lens through which I see the world, I guess, um, but as you've sort of alluded to, I also spent uh, many years um, pursuing music professionally, and so uh, I guess that's still a significant part of how I see myself and mm. a lens through which I interact with the world around me and see people. Um, mm. It's been interesting over the last two years as I've transitioned into doing ministry full-time instead of music, um, 
it's been interesting to see the way that's shaped my identity. Uh, when people ask, you know, you know, so like, who are you? I used to always say, oh, you know, I'm a professional musician, and now I've had to sort of start switching to say I work for a church. Um, and even as I've had to sort of catch myself going back into the, the old habit of saying I'm a musician, um, I've had to realise that there's a bit slight um, identity shift in how I see myself, what I actually do with my time, and how that's changed with the way people see me as well. I think mm-hmm. identity is not always just a, um, a one-way thing. It's not just how I see myself, but often how the world perceives me and how I interact with other people. Um, so it's interesting to sort of see that fluidity of identity um, in those areas. And obviously, there's a lot more to me than the things that I do uh, for my job. Uh, but that's been an interesting sort of case study in seeing how identity can shift even with something as seemingly uh, surface level as a career change. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about that shift and how you navigated it. Was it a difficult thing or was the identity of a musician very easily integrated into an identity as a as someone who works for a church? Yeah, look, I think in terms of the internal part of the identity, it actually didn't feel like a huge transition. Um, so I've often explained it to people as, you know, as a Christian, ministry's always been a big part of my life. I always hoped it would be. And music was what I did full-time for my job, um, whereas now it's switched slightly so that um, music, uh, music is still a big part of my life, um, but ministry is what I do full-time for my job. But they've both always been present um, as things that I'm very passionate about. Yeah. Uh, but I guess, like, sort of deep down in terms of a, a deeper level of identity, like, I, I still see myself uh, as a Christian first and foremost, as a thing that shapes how I see myself. And that hasn't changed and hopefully won't change based on what I do for a living. Yeah. Um, so I guess in that sense, the internal navigation of identity hasn't been a big thing. Yeah. The big thing has probably been how other people have seen my identity. Mm. Um, and that was a weird thing, like, I think choosing not to pursue music professionally, especially because I, I was doing very well and I had lots of opportunities to pursue it. And at the time, I had just been offered um, positions at a few music academies in Europe, and I decided to turn them down, uh, to say in Australia, and later to pursue ministry. And people in my um, field of music found that really hard to understand um, because to them, choosing to give up a promising career in music is almost as serious a decision as um, giving up being a Christian might be to another believer. Yeah. And so I had to sort of deal with all of their shattered expectations and what this means about who I am and what I value to decide to do something else for a living. And even though I felt quite a piece of it myself, I had to navigate all of those conversations with people and then the way they might interact with me differently thinking that I'm not one of them anymore or trying to sort of um, prove to them that like yes I still belong in your community and I'm still a musician regardless of what I actually do for my paid work yeah yeah oh that's so that's so fascinating do you think do you feel like you've given up uh it was it a good exchange or did you feel like it was a giving up of a good thing for a good thing uh oh uh, it's, it's pretty complex, I think. Um, I definitely haven't doubted the decision I made, and I haven't regretted it at any point. Um, but it, it did also feel like a costly decision, and it was a decision that took a long time to make because of the cost and because um, choosing to close the door on a full-time performance career, um, that's a, not an entirely irreversible decision, but quite irreversible because after taking two years to do a ministry apprenticeship, the chances that I could go back and find a, a spot in the music industry is quite slim. I mean, it's hard enough to make it already as it is in the music mm. industry. Uh, but to do it after having sort of severed the, the um, professional respect of a lot of colleagues, 
but I show that there is something that's more important to me than music, um, that's that's quite hard. So even if my playing was still up, up to a high standard, the credibility I might have professionally um, might have been lost. Yeah. And so deciding to do a ministry traineeship was a pretty big deal, and it was a decision to, to leave behind of what I'd spent years and years working to. Uh, but that said, like I love Jesus, and I love you know learning more about the Bible and talking about God to people. Yeah. And so I don't feel like I regret what I'm doing, um, and I still do enjoy uh, lots of creativity and music in what I do, both for fun but also for work. I enjoy doing all sorts of non-Bassoon-related music things um, <laughs> as well. So I still feel like music's enriching my life, and the creativity and the things I've learned is still paying off, even if it's not my full-time job. Yeah, and I was just reading a piece that you wrote. You've got a blog called singledout.blog.com. Is that right? Uh, just singledout.blog, yeah. Singledout.blog. And you wrote a really fascinating piece about identity and as a Christian and yourself as, as a celibate gay Christian. So tell us a little bit about that because in a, in a similar way... Um, you're giving up, as a celibate gay Christian, you're giving up something as well and taking upon something. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting comparison to make, actually. Um, Yeah, I think it's easy to think of celibacy as giving up on something, um, to give up the hopes and dreams of of marriage, pursuing that sort of romantic sexual relationship and then all the other things that come with that, like giving up, the idea of parenthood, of having children, having a biological family, all that sort of thing. Um, but I guess probably similar to the decision uh, to move into ministry, um, it's actually experientially felt probably a lot more like stepping towards something than stepping away from something. Right. And it was the idea of stepping towards something uh, which has an even um, greater sense of meaning uh, that's made it, um, I think, uh, more plausible uh, to step away from something which is costly. And so, yeah, I mean, there are definitely things that I do miss out on as a single and celibate person, and there are definitely um, unmet desires that I continue to experience uh, for a romantic relationship. Uh, But I think deeper than that is the identity that I have uh, as a Christian, as someone who has experienced the love of Jesus, um, and as someone who, um, yeah, has has made the decision that pursuing a relationship with God is worth anything else that Mm. I could possibly give it. and as um, Ed Shaw said in the plausibility problem, uh, sometimes our love is shown not just in the sex that we have, but the sex that we don't have. That's not just a giving up or something, but it's actually an expression of love. And so in the same way that um, you know, a spouse might choose to give up uh, pursuing sexual relationship with someone they're attracted to who's not their spouse, and that's a deep expression of their love and devotion and loyalty to their spouse. Mm. Um, in the same way, a celibate single Christian um, would also um, see the celibacy as a deep expression of their love and devotion to God. Um, and so I think for me, it's that, that's probably largely how I see it, is the identity that I have uh, as someone who is not only loved by God, but looks forward uh, to what the Bible promises as the ultimate expression of marriage, uh, which is when the church will be united to Jesus in the new creation as his bride. Mm. Uh, because I know that's, that's part of my uh, eternal love story. Um, it's, it's actually worth stepping towards something with a deeper meaning like that, even if it means um, stepping away from pursuing a relationship in this life. Yeah. And you write about, especially you having kind of a dual citizenship in two worlds because of the identity that you have. 
Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so by dual citizenship, um, uh, I'm referring to um, existing in, in two what's often seen as distinct communities, and the realities are not necessarily distinct or discrete communities, mm. uh, but that is, on the one hand, um, my church family as my Christian community, and also um, being someone who is gay and experiences solidarity with other LGBTQI plus people. Um, and that's often a, a fascinating intersection of not just experiences, but of belonging to community, where mm. I can feel a deep solidarity with both communities. That's mm. not to say that my experience with them is entirely symmetrical, like they're both um, the same but different halves of my life. Um, but there is a, a sense of connection, solidarity I experience with them both. And so dual, dual citizenship um, leaves me experiencing um, my identity and my relationship to those communities in an interesting way. Uh, it can go both ways. So I think sometimes the dual citizenship leaves me feeling like um, I have um, almost like a sort of bilingual skill. I can actually mm. be fluent in the culture and practices and experiences of, of two different communities, which might often be quite misunderstood by each other. Um, it's not often that an evangelical Christian who works for a church um, can sit around with a bunch of um, other queer people and to share coming out experiences and to feel that deep solidarity. That's, yeah. that's quite a rare thing. Yeah. Um, and on the flip side, um, yeah, it's unusual uh, to be in you know, Christian staff meetings and to be able to represent uh, a queer experience of uh, being gay um, in that staff meeting. And so I think there are times I'm able to, to advocate um, and, to, and to see see things from both sides, which is really cool. Yeah. But at the same time, you often experience the, the flip side of that, which is feeling quite different because wherever you go, um, whichever group of people you're in, uh, there's going to be a significant part of your experience that those people don't understand and might yeah. never quite understand intuitively. Yeah. And it seems like by by having that dual citizenship, you are you may be exclu- you may be seen as a minority by both communities. Yeah, absolutely. So I think a lot of a lot of people have described being a celibate gay Christian as a minority within a minority. Yeah, yeah. How does that tell us what your experiences and your feelings and thoughts about that is um has that been a a a, a um, particularly hard um thing to experience or have has it been people have people been really welcoming in that aspect uh yes and yes <laughs> i think both are true um yeah so i think i think part of it is like this is just life as i've always known it um, I haven't actually known what it's like uh, to to fit in in a way that um, I haven't yet experienced. Uh, I don't know what it is to just uh, experience heterosexual attraction and you know just sort of follow what's seen as a more conventional um, series of life stages where you date someone, you can engage, you get married, you have kids, blah blah blah. Um, I haven't even experienced what it's like to have um, older role models who can actually sort of model to me what life as an older single gay Christian might look like. So mm. a lot of the time of my life, I've just been stumbling along trying to work out how to do this this life thing. Um, and that's kind of all I've known. So in some ways, I'm only just recently starting to, to grapple with, um, yeah, the, the unique and different um, experiences that I've had as compared to the people I see around me. Yeah. Um, at the same time, there has been a lot of a lot of um, really beautiful support and friendship and love that I've experienced, uh, which has um, yeah definitely helped me feel grounded, feel stable. Um, not always understood, but definitely loved. 
And I'm starting to realise those are different things, that sometimes, for anyone, there'll be times where um, people won't necessarily understand what it is you're going through, um, but they can still love you. Yeah. And that they don't have to fully understand your experience to love you. So tell... Um, so tell us, for, for, for those of us who don't know what that experience is and who may have friends and family going through this experience, what is it that you'd like them to understand? Oh, so many things. Um, if I have a whole blog about writing this stuff. <laughs> um, but to sort of summarise it here, a key point or two, I think one thing is that um, this experience of being a dual citizen... Um, while it definitely has its perks, um, often there's a lot of invisible uh, struggles. There's, there's invisible difference, differentness, which I think isn't always um, seen as clearly from the outside. And so um, I'll just explain that a bit more. So I think I, I, people like me might grow up feeling deeply different. I've been reading um, The Velvet Rage by Alan Downs, mm. uh, which talks a little bit about how uh, even from the ages of four to six, he says, um, you realise that you're just very different from your parents. And as you grow older, as someone who's uh, not attracted to the same sex, you start to realise that you're just experiencing the world in a very different way to the friends around you. Um, and so from from your whole life, uh, often the experience is that you feel deeply different, you feel shame over that. Uh, but the thing is, and this is the, the crazy thing, is as, as we come to terms with feeling different, we work so hard to find acceptance and love by pretending to be the same as everyone else, by pursuing conformity. Um, and so from the outside, it might actually look like we're not that different to anyone else. Uh, and it might take years for us to actually come to the point of uh, being able to speak about the ways that we feel different. Or maybe we won't even realise for ourselves for many years um, that that's actually what's going on under the surface. Mm. And so I think if you'd asked you know, most of my friends whether I struggle with feeling different um, or feeling um, out of place in communities, most of them would say, no, he fits in, he's, you know, he's sort of the, um, the life of the party or you know, he's, he's very well connected to people. And those things are true, but I think a lot of the time that's, that's a very deliberate compensation for the, the deep shame or difference that we feel as we've worked very hard, um, often as an outsider, to work out how do people fit into this community, how do they relate to each other in ways that are accepted. Mm-hmm. We've worked hard to mimic that. And so I think for me, it's actually been quite hard to uh, pursue an authenticity yeah. um, in relating to people in a way which is a sincere and genuine expression of, of who I am and the sort of person that I am, um, while also obviously like, you know, considering the fact that, yeah, I'm human and I do like to fit in to a group of people. And you know, sometimes it is easier to sort of observe the way people relate and to copy that. Um, so that's a tricky balance to follow. So I'll just say, for people uh, like me who, who might have grown up as a gay person in a Christian community, um, we might look like we fit in. We might look like everything's fine and dandy for us. Um, but deep down, often there are still like a deeper sense of uh, marginalisation or feeling different um, that we're not as good at showing to people. Um, mm-hmm. So just be be conscious of those things. And maybe if, if you really want to be a good friend, it's good to to ask the sort of questions that invite people to start to share those experiences they might not have talked about much before. Yeah, and I was just talking to a bunch of youth leaders the other day, and I was saying that it's the ministry of presence, not present as in gifts, but presence with a C-E, is kind of very slim in our times, just being with people and sitting with people, people who are suffering and who just need to speak. Um, It seems like we've we've lost that deep time that's necessary 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's just sitting and being with people is, is a great thing. Also, just like, I think normalizing the experience and um, just being curious and asking questions. Like, if um, if someone has, has shared this part of their, their life and their story with you, um, it's actually okay to ask them questions and to not make a big deal out of it. Um, but, you know, I, I, have, I have to say, like, I remember the first time someone just, you know, turned to me and said, hey, so what's your type? And, like, literally no one had ever asked me that before. That was kind of a weird question. But to just sort of normalize it and to have a more lighthearted conversation and being able to talk about my experiences in a way that I'd never done before, mm. that was actually very freeing. And it opened the doors to having um, much deeper trust for this person and be able to just share things, which wasn't super intense. It wasn't pulling my heart out about any big suffering. But it just made me feel seen. And that yeah. was a really powerful way of, of showing love. Yeah. So tell me, um, I, I do know that the, the whole language aspect of describing oneself is very debated in Christian circles, especially the use of the word gay uh, and stuff, gay celibate or whatnot. You've got a special take on that. So just just describe to us a little bit, should, we, should Christians who are... Uh, believe in the traditional uh, th- uh, understanding of marriage in the Bible, be using the word gay. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's not a simple and objective answer to that question because of the nature of language, which is subjective, and where words like gay do change their meaning. And in fact, we've seen that, that meaning change quite a lot over the last few decades. And so I can't give a definitive answer for all times and all cultures, uh, but I can speak from the perspective of someone who is a millennial in 2020 in Australia and say that the way I see most people use the word gay, it's not, it's not intrinsically um, a statement of identity uh, or one of a particularly ethical or moral stance. Um, basically, if someone says I'm gay, all they're saying um, is that I'm attracted to the same sex and it's nothing less and nothing more, and it can be associated with a bunch of other experiences. And um, absolutely, um, language is not a neutral thing, and it, um, you know, each word comes with its own baggage. Um, but I've I've realised that I've just done a lot of listening to to gay people as they describe themselves. That most of the time, what they're describing is just their sexual orientation, not a particular moral stance. And so I'm very comfortable at um, being able to use the same language which the world around me. Um, is familiar with um, for clarity of communication. Yeah, um, so I guess that gives you that 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 kind of dual citizenship, right? Where you can use that term in with your queer friends, and they understand what you're saying. But at the same time, yeah. you might want to refrain from using that to slightly more conservative group if you're if you want to speak in a way that blesses them or that is yeah. Is that right? Um, yeah, I mean, like, obviously, with any effective communication, you, you speak the dialect of the culture you're in. Yeah. And so I, I do seek to do that. But I think there are different purposes in communication as well. So sometimes um, you want to express solidarity with people. So if I'm speaking with other gay people, um, I'll try and sort of share the language and the experiences that we can share um, to show that I understand them and I relate to them and I empathize with them. Um, and that would, would be what I call the solidarity approach. But then there's also the differentiation approach, uh, on the other hand, where sometimes it is actually, actually helpful to contrast my experience with other people's. That might be in some cases when I'm actually wanting people to see that because I'm a Christian, this radically shapes my experience of sexuality. Mm. Um, 
and that might influence the sort of language that I use. Um, and that works the other way as well with Christians. So sometimes with Christians, um, it's just easier to use the term same-sex attracted because for some reason Christians think that's just a better substitute. And you know that, that just means less questions. But a lot of the time I'll actually quite subversively, deliberately use the word gay in Christian circles because I know that they know the common usage of that word. But I also know that a lot of Christians love to debate word choices um, far more than they probably should. <laughs> and um, I actually, I, I don't mind being a little bit controversial uh, if it means that people are actually going to ask more questions mm. and actually follow up by asking, what does it actually mean when you use the word gay? And maybe that's a conversation that can lead to a learning opportunity or them actually realising that lots of people in Australia now use this word in a way that Christians haven't quite realised, mm. um, that it's not necessarily an identity statement. In fact, it really is, uh, in my experience. Uh, and hopefully that's just a way of actually showing Christians the way that I use the word gay alongside words like Christian and celibate. Um, it's a bit subversive because it, it breaks down uh, these preconceived notions of what it is to be gay or what it is to be Christian. Mm, mm. That's so helpful to think that uh, we are, in a way, need to not only be um, masters of our language and not mastered by language, but we have to also help the people we understand uh, to, to, sorry, help the people who listen to us understand us, but at the same time, try to uh, teach them something on the outcome. So it's, it's a real balance between self-description and other person-centeredness, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. And I, I think there's an interesting comparison to, made, to be made here uh, to the way Jesus used parables. Mm. Um, I know this is a bit niche. I don't know um, how familiar some of the listeners to this podcast might be with uh, how Jesus used parables. But, um, but parables Jesus are just to... like stories that say he... What's, what's a f- famous parable? Uh, uh, the prodigal son. Yeah, the prodigal son, where a son leaves the father, takes half of the money, comes back, and the father welcomes him home. That it's a deeper, the deeper story there is to illustrate that God's love is so immense that um, he's able to frivolously give away stuff to his lost son, and then his son comes back and he's still welcomed in opened arms. Yeah, that's right. Now, what's really interesting about the way that Jesus uses parables is that he says um, in a few places in the Gospels, uh, particularly in things like Mark 4, um, he says that he uses parables that, uh, um, uh, to, to keep some people from seeing so that those who have eyes might not see and those who have ears might not hear, but also that those who um, are his disciples who are actually following and asking questions can also understand. So there's this weird dividing thing that these stories do. They're not just metaphors which add clarity. In some cases, they're actually obscuring the clarity for people who have hard hearts. Mm. And so there's what I think um, uh, a writer called Snodgrass calls the hermeneutic of hearing, where the way that Jesus um, uses these parables is powerful because those who actually want to know more, who are actually following him and asking him questions, they get the deeper meaning revealed to them in asking questions and following Jesus. But those who are just there, you know, arrogantly sort of wanting to prove that they're right as they're having conversations with Jesus, they hear this story and they don't get it and they walk away none the wiser. And so these parables, they actually really cleverly uh, force people who have open hearts uh, to ask more, to learn more, to listen humbly, while the people who are just not worth spending the time on um, walk away not understanding it. And so in some ways, I think that that sort of um, dividing approach is um, something I've, I've started to do a bit with the way that I might speak about language. Because obviously, you know, 
just because I'm a celibate gay Christian doesn't mean I like to give everyone a lecture on the history of words or, you know, um, bear my, my feelings and emotions to everyone. So sometimes a way of actually weeding out the people who are just there for an argument about word choices is actually to use a word that might be a little bit um, controversial. Right. And that's not just to incite controversy, but actually because if this person really cares about listening to the stories of gay people, they'll ask questions. They'll ask, what do you mean by that word? And they'll listen. Um, but if they don't bother to do that, then I don't think I have the energy to um, to educate everyone. Yeah, um, don't things. throw pearls so among swine, right? Yeah, so that's that's been a, a way of, I think, both um, having opportunities to, to educate people more on my experiences when it's worth it, but also being a bit self, um, a bit of self-preservation, uh, of being able to spare myself the emotional um, depletion of constantly trying to explain everything like this, just every time that my sexual orientation comes up in conversation, because that yeah. gets exhausting. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of, you, you don't want to, you want to be able to ex- tell people about yourself, but at the same time, you don't want to uh, uh, have every conversation just nitpicking about who you are and how you do describe yourself. Um, that just becomes uh, unhelpful, I think, for some, some people as well, um, especially those who are just wanting to pick arguments and you needing to um, um, explain yourself. Yeah, and there's a real exhaustion that comes from, you know, every time that that this might come up. And it might come up in a very um, sort of lighthearted ways. Like it might be someone, you know, asking, like, am I dating anyone or, or something like that? And then to answer that question, it might involve disclosing that actually I'm celibate and gay. Uh, and I've chosen not to pursue a relationship for blah, blah, blah. And every time that little things like that come up, instead of being a short answer, uh, people are confused and you have to explain how you can be gay and Christian or why you're still single or blah, yeah. blah, blah. And it gets exhausting trying to educate people on all the background experience and knowledge that they would need to understand some of the words and experiences you're describing. Uh, it's what um, Dr. Twyla Brown calls translation exhaustion, when right. a person from a minority group uh, is constantly forced to, to explain all the, all the background experience and history that's led up to the little things that we might say. And the person in that minority group um, has to constantly not just be misunderstood, but has to be the educator. Yes. It's always uh, in a position of educating people to understand yeah. them. And sometimes that just gets exhausting. That translation exhaustion just wears you down. Yeah. Tell us that this has been such an interesting and um, fascinating conversation about language use. I never I never thought we'd even <laughs> uh, get, get to here. But our time is nearly up and my coffee is nearly finished, even though I should be drinking an Earl Grey. Um, tell me, I've got my last question for you. Jesus definitely was in a minority group and he definitely reached out to minority groups. How does that give you hope as someone who is slightly on the fringes of things? Mm. Um, yeah, it's interesting hearing Jesus described as in a minority group, but I guess being a single 30-something-year-old in his day, that would well and truly put him in a category of a sexual minority of, of some sort. <laughs> uh, but I think, I think what's really powerful is uh, reading that. Like, we're told that Jesus experienced um, every kind of temptation just like us, and he, is, he suffered just like us. And so um, there's, there's no part of, of my experience that is foreign to Jesus, um, that he's able to empathise with me and my weakness because of what he experienced. That he didn't just experience it as some distant, faraway deity, 
Uh, but he experienced it as a man, as, as a human being with a nature like mine. Um, and so I think knowing that um, in those moments where there are people who love me, but not always people who understand me, um, or they're very hard to find, uh, knowing that God always understands me and loves me perfectly, I think that's, that's a profound comfort to me. Yeah. Um, even being a minority within a minority, to know that, that God can relate to me, um, that's, yeah. that's powerful, especially because I think there's a lot of shame that comes from feeling different. Um, and shame can be a really destructive thing, but when you think, actually, God, God empathizes with me, he, he knows what it's like to feel this, that helps to take away the, the fear of shame, uh, the, the fear of um, thinking that if I was truly known for who I am, I wouldn't be loved. Yeah. Um, to know that God actually does truly know me and see me, I'm still loved. Um, so I think that, that helps me um, a lot. Um, knowing that I can pray to God any time and that he hears and understands. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for your time. And it's been a wonderful chat with you, even though we've, uh, we're chatting over the distance of a hundred, hundreds of kilometres, you being in Brisbane. But it's great chatting with you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sam. And this has been Conversations with Earl Grey with my good friend, Matt Ventura. I hope that has been an encouragement to you. And if you like what he's been saying, check out his blog on singledout.blog. If you like us, subscribe to us on Spotify or iTunes. And we're looking very much to seeing you again next week with another cuppa. Playing us out is Matt Ventura on the bassoon on one of his concertos.